Hey, what's going on, guys? It's been a while, but the Battlefield Theologian is back. The podcast is back. I've got this episode for you guys. I'm excited about this. This is something that I've been uh, researching for quite some time, and we're going to be talking about a few different things here, but essentially what we're looking at is unveiling ideological subversion and exploring cultural Marxism's subtle influence in American Christianity. Hope you guys have been doing well. We are going to be discussing this and the different ways this has played out in the church, in the life of the Christian, and also in different ministry aspects and traditions that we've done in the church that many of us have never really taken the time just to step back and to think, why is it that we're doing what we're doing in the church? Is this the best way? Is this the biblical way? Is there scriptural support for it? And so we're going to be looking at this um, topic between cultural Marxism ideological subversion and the subtle influences. So the first point I want to talk about is understanding cultural Marxism and its roots. This is a term that's been thrown around a lot. Not sure how familiar you are with it. Uh, This is not an extensive unpacking of cultural Marxism, but this is just going to help give you guys a framework for how to view this. So to look at the origins of cultural Marxism and its fundamental principles, the issue with cultural Marxism is obviously, as it says in the name, It's rooted in Marxist theory. Uh, And what this is, is it seeks to examine how cultural institutions and values shape society. This started in the early 20th century, and it started as a theory which now has evolved into a focus on the role uh, in today's life and in today's school and many other sections of how it plays out in culture, language, and belief system. And this is really what is shaping currently the political power dynamics and social hierarchy. Now, this is, again, a theoretical framework, and it emerged from the traditional Marxist thought, and it is focusing on the cultural factors. How do those factors play out within our everyday life? What is it uh, and how it applies in our belief system, our values, our norms, and our language? Now, this is contributing, and mainly what you see and how you will see this play out is it helps, if you will, not helps. I would say it went from helping and contributing to now it is dictating how the social dynamic and the hierarchy is. And this is breaking down what has always been to replace it with some new system as if it is, in fact, some new system that's going to work better as if we have been getting it wrong ever since. What this is doing is it's adjusting that cultural elements play a significant role in maintaining power structures and inequalities within society. Uh, Cultural Marxism aims to analyze and challenge dominant cultural narratives and institutions that perpetuate, here it is, social injustices, often by examining issues related to identity, privilege, and social classes. So if you're wondering where did this whole gender identity debate come up from, that's where it came. If you're wondering how did intersectionality, critical race theory, where did that come from? It came from this. If you're wondering where social justice came from, it came from this. And several, several years ago when the social justice movement came out and I saw a lot of people jumping onto that bandwagon, uh, a lot of other individuals such as Vodi Bakum and some other guys were raising the red flag of, hey, this is Marxism. You guys need to be careful with what you guys are intaking. But again, most people do not think critically through anything and they just m- jump on the bandwagon with everybody else. Essentially what this is doing, it critiques and it reshapes the cultural norms. Now, some people... Uh, don't see this as a threat to the traditional values and institutions such as American Christianity and how uh, our country was founded. This gained traction essentially from uh, scholars that recognize economic factors alone could not explain societal structures. 
It aimed to uncover how beliefs, values, and norms contribute to inequalities and control. The way in which these norms contribute to the inequalities and control, you see this playing out in seven, diff seven different arenas. Uh, the first one is identity politics and the social justice movement. That's where the debates about identity, privilege, and social justice have continued. It's shocking how much this has continued to shape various spheres of our society, including academia, media, and politics. Um, this is even infiltrated in many of the seminaries uh, in what they're pushing and what they're purporting uh, with um, white fragility, with systemic racism and everything else. This has really taken off in identity politics. So if you see local politicians like really platforming themselves based off of identity politics and social justice, you're going to see like a, a good amount of momentum backing them because like that's kind of like the cultural, if you will, hitting point it's a hot topic it's a hot button and people are making it seem like again what's interesting about this is this has slowly come out of left field but this has been being baked into our country for quite some time but now it's like to the pro to the the top forefront of everyone's mind that we've got to deal with this we've got to deal with this as if this is going to somehow shut down uh america shut down the church shut down uh the political system if we don't figure out identity politics. Now with this too, this brings about diversity and inclusion initiatives. Uh, so many institutions, including workplaces and educational settings have already uh, been implementing diversity and inclusion programs. Uh, recently, uh, I was listening and watching Matt Gates discuss with a four-star general in the Air Force regarding a special program for transgender individuals but if you are a heterosexual person, you can't afford or you're not allowed to even go to this. A, which is just mind blowing to me that diversity and gender inclusion is a top issue for our war fighting effort. How that uh, assists with a war fighting effort, I don't understand. When you actually look at the statistical and demographical breakdown of our fighting forces, um, it's not an issue. It's not an issue at all. But now we're making it an issue and we're continually purporting these issues to make them larger mountains than they really are. The other thing you see is you play, you see this play out in media and entertainment. Uh, cultural Marxist perspectives are present all in our media. The content explores the themes of representation, cultural appropriation, and social issues. Uh, you see this playing out in many movies and even kids shows and stuff now where they're pushing the transgender ideologies into the children. Uh, they're pushing now too in the movies. I mean, not pushing now. It's been going on for a while about the female empowerment and down with the patriarchy and you know how every guy or every man if they're masculine is now a misogynist uh and it's being indoctrinated through our entertainment devices and what's interesting is that we as a people have gotten extremely consumeristic heavy where we have to be entertained constantly there's no such thing as boredom you can't just sit down if you think about it for those of you who are over the age of 30 you, you have a time in which you remember where you did not have a phone in your hand. I challenge you guys too. when you go to the restaurant or you go out, if you're standing in line and you may even do this too, I'm guilty of this. As you're standing in line, you can't just stand there and look around and watch people. You have to pull out your phone, scroll, TikTok, Instagram, whatever else, because you need to entertain yourself. Now, as you're being entertained and especially with how the algorithm is, I've actually written on this. The algorithm is training your brain is also training you to get these dopamine hits as well where you are looking for the next entertainment, you're looking for the next thing and you doubt and even question uh, 
your success based off of your level of boredom. Now, again, I'm not going extensively into each of these. I could do a podcast on each one of these breakdowns. I'm just giving you kind of a heads up bird's eye view on what these issues are. The next one is the education and curriculum debates. If you remember Common Core, when Common Core popped out of every, you know, out of nowhere, what was the issue? Why, why was the issue all of a sudden now a immediate education crisis concern that we've got to immediately fix and come up with a new paradigm for how we do this? Well, the curriculum content in education, uh, it's been continually in a state of reform. It's got cultural Marxist ideologies, specifically in terms of how historical narratives and social concepts are taught. If you look at some of the history books that we see now in our public school system, and you were to compare that with one that was done in the 90s or the early 2000s, not that I'm saying the 90s or the early 2000s is like the you know perfect statistical ideal style history book, but they have been changing the narrative. They've been changing the narrative of history that we know to be true. We're no longer now is history a matter of fact, but history is a matter of interpretation and it's a matter of subjectivity rather than objectivity. The fourth thing that I think is really dangerous is how cultural Marxism has influenced religious communities and institutions such as the church. These religious groups, and you see churches jump on the bandwagon, uh, they're jumping on the bandwagon about social justice, inclusion, and can faith actually address these societal issues? And some people have lowered the content of the gospel, lowered the content of what Jesus addresses in his public ministry, where Jesus says there's no Jew nor Greek. If you have Christ, you are all now one. But now we have to make these distinctions between uh, race discriminations. And now we have to say that certain religious institutions are not being inclusive of other people's ideologies. And if you don't accept other individuals' ideologies into your faith system, then you are somehow being ignorant. And what's interesting about this is that you don't really see this affecting any non-quote-unquote Christian religious institutions. And by Christian, I mean uh, individuals that identify as a Christian, not as a evangelical Bible-professing, Jesus-believing individual, but anyone that is under the banner of Christianity, which would include Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, stuff like that. But you don't see this going after Islam. You don't see this going after Buddhists. You don't see this going after the other Eastern religions, it's mainly and primarily only the Western religions trying to unpack and discredit those because they have higher moral and ethical views from scripture, which is derived from scripture, at least for us as Protestants, derived from scripture and cultural Marxism pulls all of that into question saying, that's not actually what that says. That's not actually what that means. You can't really trust anything. And this is really nothing new because I remember in the early 2000s when the emergent church movement came about with people like uh, Brian McLaren and some other individuals, and they were writing about deconstructing your faith and saying, we don't know what the Bible really says about anything. And again, that's just postmodernism at its core, but really at the core of that is cultural Marxism. The fifth one is the language and discourse. This is how we are using language and how language reflects power dynamics and societal structures to be a continual subject of analysis and debate, which has been influenced by more cultural Marxism insights. So the language you use, the word you use no longer means what it means. It now means whatever you want and determine it to mean. Uh, the way in which people discourse now is even more uh, decline, is in more state of decline. If you look at the social interactions to behind, if you just did a comparison behind Generation Z and millennials or even millennials and gen x and you look at the generational disparities on discourse and communication a lot of the younger individuals coming up are not being 
able to participate in social interactions and social discourse. Well, why? Well, it's because the way in which they discourse now is purposefully and only through the digital realm. So when it comes to, you know, having interpersonal communications and having the ability to discourse and talk with people in person, it's a whole lot less likely. And it's not going to actually have any kind of a positive effect where people can now reason, people can agree to disagree. There's no more in our society, this let's agree to disagree, meaning you have to concede and take my viewpoint. Otherwise, you're a bigot and you're ignorant. Whereas before, especially in academia, you could have a scholarly debate. And at the end of the debate, even if you disagree with each other, uh, you could still have had that discussion and not have to immediately go after attacking the person in the character. If you're curious, like how this plays out, look at the comments in any of the Instagram videos that you see where someone takes a stance on something. You jump into that comment section, it is atrocious. If I was to post a video saying, my girls like to dress up and paint their toenails, I guarantee just as something as benign of a statement as that, someone's going to jump all over me saying I'm a misogynistic and how I'm forcing my children and my daughters to embrace their womanhood and how this is, uh, again, a, a patriarchal viewpoint because this individual is a bigot and this and that. And you just see people destroy other individuals on social media. Now, would you have that same kind of standing if you were to confront the person in person? Probably not. People don't interact interpersonally in the same way people interact in the digital realm. People in the digital realm have, think about it, you, you, we call them keyboard warriors or whatever else. There's really no accountability. You can say what you want when you want. And if you've got a big movement, you'll get everyone else to back you. If a person with 2,000 followers uh, attacks a person uh, with 200 followers, those followers of the person of 2,000 are going to jump on the bandwagon uh, against the person of 200 followers, even if the influence in the the statements that the individual with 2,000 followers is making is wrong, they don't care because the majority is what is dictating the narrative. And when the majority dictates the narrative and not facts and truth, then what on earth are we left with? We're left on straight confusion. No one knows up from down, and it's just it's just really bad. And so that's the cultural Marxist influence on language and discourse because we have so moved into and away from interpersonal communications, physical eye-to-eye contact, to now you, you don't get that. You see this too, actually, even in the job environment. Think about before COVID, and I would say after COVID is where you saw a huge shift in this. So before COVID, jobs weren't really that big of an issue. Jobs in some of these, let's just use fast food restaurants, for instance, they didn't have issues filling these part-time wage gaps. But then when the uh, isolation shutdown happened, people had to work from home. And then they realized, man, these government uh, assistance programs, man, I don't really have to work if I don't want to work. Again, that's cultural Marxism. And that's even a step further. That's even a form of socialism because someone is paying for that unemployment. Someone is paying for those loans that people were getting that they never have to pay back. And now when you try and go to these restaurants and now when you go, the workforce has shifted from being young people working in what would be considered such as a drive-through at McDonald's young people. Now, at least in our area, you go through some of these drive-throughs. Now it's older individuals, people coming out of retirement, filling these jobs. And the big question I always have is where are all these other people going and how are they getting money? The final way in the influence in the area you see this play out is, and I think this is the most prominent, is the political and activist movements. There's been so many different political movements and activist groups 
that are using and invoking Marxist ideologies to bring up issues of inequality, social change, and the equal distribution of resources. I don't know how many of you had student loans or currently have student loans, but when Joe Biden, President Biden did the student loan forgiveness, why? Where did that come from? Well, it came from the idea that there are some people who do not have the same opportunities that other individuals have. Um, so therefore, we need to make it equal across, across the board. The whole purpose in why America was founded was one, obviously religious liberty and freedom, but then two is that because we are in a capitalistic society, if you have the wherewithal to be able to begin and start your own business, you have every access and ability to make that as thriving of a business as you can if you put in the time, work, and the effort. But now what's happening is people are looking for these handouts. People are not looking to actually put in the hard work anymore. They want to get this easy job. And the way in which I've seen a lot of this is that these young people are looking at older people thinking, well, that older person is a millionaire. Therefore, I want to be a millionaire. But they don't see all of the work that that millionaire did to get to that status and that point of the financial investment, the hard work and everything else. They think that they are now entitled to that level of uh, social acceptance through the financials. And then when you look at the inequality, I mean, again, that's across the board. And then social change is we have to have things uh, change on how our paradigm was or the norm. And this is going to lead us into how this has affected the church. So how this is moving into the church is it's, it's crazy true too how you've seen Marxist influence in the church and specifically American Christianity. American Christianity has always played a significant role in shaping the cultural norms, values, morality, and ethics. However, Marxism has seeped into the discussions where instead of Christianity being focused on holy living and fighting sin and moving away from that, it has become more concerned with social justice, equality, and inclusivity within many denominations. And that is a direct mirror on the Marxist emphasis on power dynamics and class struggle. The pursuit of justice and compassion within Christianity, sometimes you can see how this aligns with certain tenets of cultural Marxism. However, what this does is it does so at the cost of religious doctrine. This comes at the cost of what the Bible actually says. And how do these, how do these subtleties affect the faith? Well, the way in which one it's affected the faith is through what is called ideological subversion. So when you look at, or if you've never been familiar with this term, what ideological subversion is, it refers to the process by which external ideologies infiltrate and alter traditional belief systems. And it's often done without immediate recognition. So it's like a cancer that creeps in and then it starts to grow and fester. And before you know it, what started in as a out left field ideology has now replaced the norm with itself. So what you would see as the Bible being the primary driving force of the church. Now, numerical growth is what's driving the drive of the church. Now, pragmatism, a means to an end, is what's driving the status of the church. And the problem with ideological subversion is it is subtle and it's typically unintentional and it transforms, it transforms how believers perceive the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, the focus of this and where this really came back out of was a former KJB spy named Yuri Bezmanov, uh, also known as Thomas Schumann. And this came out in the mid-1980s. And in this, he was interviewed, and I'll post the, the link for this uh, in the show notes. 
He explains the difference in what, what, what we might think subversion is about to what it is actually. So think about this. When you think about ideological subversion, he says this quote, only about 15% of the time money and manpower is spent on espionage and such. The other 85% is a slow process, which we call either ideological subversion or active measures of psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in their interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country, end quote. So what he is saying here is that the perception of reality that has crept in, even though we have access to all of the information to check the facts, we can't determine what is truth from non-truth or what is happening is that no one is actually pursuing to seek out what truth is, and they are just accepting the cultural mantra or what the majority is saying. You see this play out in Facebook. The amount of fake news information that I see uh, individuals sharing where they don't actually read the article, they just read the headline and then they reshare it. Why? Because it feeds the narrative that they've already been bought into. And what's fed the narrative of why they are in that camp of political or whatever system is because the algorithm has slowly trained them to be into that worldview standpoint. Now, when you look at ideological subversion and what he is saying from a former KJB spy, which is the Russian version of the CIA, is the indoctrination in the psychological warfare that they started in America was very purposeful and was very well thought out. And the whole purpose of doing this is number one for demoralization. In this first step that they do, it takes about 15 to 20 years for this to actually start to gain momentum. That's the actual time needed to educate a generation. Now, what helps along the way is the media and the teachers who have become sympathetic, whether they know it or not, to the theoretical causes of subverting the nation. Now, Bezmanov claims that the USSR, former Soviet Union, was surprised at how easy this was to implement in the U.S. And we see that happening today. And I feel like a lot of what's happening today has not been needing to take 15 to 20 years. It has its initial starting point 15 to 20 years ago, but now that the the soil is fertile and ripe, now we can start to talk to under 12 year old kids about, you know, gender transitioning. Now we can start to make homosexual behavior a norm. Now we can start to make it seem that uh, the way things are right now is how they always should have been. And we're getting back to, if you will, almost like a form of reformation back to what America should have always been. But what's interesting is this has come in from a foreign entity and body and has come in to indoctrinate us in America. So the first step with this type of psychological warfare is demoralization. The second step is destabilization. Following this phase of demoralization, this is about a two to five year period that changes the target country's foreign relations, defense and economy. So why is it that America sends troops here? Why is it that America uh, has increased their product output or not increase their product output, reduce their product output? Why is it that you are importing more than you're exporting? And when you get into the economics of how this has affected America, that's why you see the debt. That's why you see this debt ceiling continue to rise, continue to rise, continue to rise. It's the whole point of destabilizing the country. Because when you're destabilizing the country, they're more concerned with the physical, tangible things that are currently happening right now 
then like the big picture stuff, wars, rumors of wars, um, conspiracy theories. They're so focused on that, that they're not focused on the subtleties on how this is influencing you in your backyard, how this is influencing your kids in the school system. And sadly, even too, how this has influenced many of the churches here. So as you look at this, it's, it's really sad. Now you look at the third step, you move into the crisis section. This takes about six weeks, and this is six weeks of chaos, and this is used as a climatic turning point. And what I would say for us as the U.S., this occurred during the COVID year. That was more than six weeks, but that was a climatic turning point in which people were forced home, forced into themselves, forced into self-isolation, in which people continually restricted, restricted, restricted uh, in their ability to interact with other humans. Then what happens is from the crisis mode, we move into normalization. And this stage changes the appreciation of what the status quo looks like. And this is typically what is done ideally is through military takeover. But if you have done this right, you don't need a foreign military to come in to overthrow or over or usurp that country. You can do so from within its own self. The way in which I've seen all of this kind of play into the church, if you look at this from a political system, take those four steps of demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization. Look at how that has affected the church today. And I would say the church today is on the feeling, the ripple effects that had started in the 60s uh, during church growth movement and stuff like that. But then also with these huge evangelism rallies and these huge people turning to faith and the huge mega church era is this pragmatic understanding that numerical growth equates to actual success or that numerical growth indicates that you have a good church or that you're in a good church. Now, it's not just with numerical growth. It would also go into programs. A thriving children's ministry means that that's a good church. A thriving youth ministry means that it's a good church. A thriving women's and men's ministry within the church means that you are in a healthy, good church. But what's interesting, though, is that none of us have taken the time to pause and ask, why is it that churches do what they do today? At anywhere else in scripture, do you see anything outlined that they had a children's ministry? Do you see anything outlined that they had a youth group ministry? Do you see anything advertised in the New Testament that there was even Sunday school classes? There isn't. There isn't. It was all in communal family worship. But now we have isolated groups, uh, the young from the old, the old from the young. And instead of being intergenerational, we have silo ministries all throughout the church in which the parents come in, drop their kids off. The church babysits them, essentially offering and operating as a daycare. And what I see the church operating more as now, most churches, is more of like a social club or a country club. You come there, you get entertained, you get your fix, you get your fill, and then you leave. And here's the great thing. You come and go when you want. The church is going to offer 15 plus events a week. You pick whichever event you want to go to. There's no actual buy-in. There's no actual covenant within the church. It's you come and go as you please. And if you don't like what's going on, you just move to another church. That's why you've seen a huge dramatic decrease in church membership is because no one cares because we have been conditioned to think that church is a consumer driven uh, institution rather than the bride of Christ. And the sad thing is, is that most individuals today in the church, all of us have been indoctrinated that the norm of how things are is the best and most biblical way and how they always should have been and how they would be. But if you actually look and if you're presented with the realities of scripture, it's going to do one of two things. Either A, it's going to speak against certain practices that you are currently doing within the church, or B, if you ask yourself, well, why are we doing this? You look and you see zero biblical backing behind why you are doing what you do in the church. That paradigm shift has occurred. Now, let me give you an example. 
I preached recently on biblical manhood and womanhood in the church. Um, this was just to address certain issues that men need to step up and lead their families and just talking about the gender roles and what the Bible says concerning the roles of man and woman. Now, here's what's interesting. When I preached on biblical manhood, the women were applauding. They were excited. They were encouraged. Uh, they came, some of them come up. Now, I'm not saying this to say, like, I gave a great message. I just exegeted a text. But what I'm saying here is that there's a huge dynamic shift from the week that I preached on biblical manhood than when I preached on biblical womanhood. During the biblical manhood, I saw women elbowing their husbands like, yeah, honey, you need to be paying attention to this. Yeah, you need to start doing this more. You need to start doing this more. And yes, that's true. Men do need to be doing this more. But now the week after when I preach on biblical womanhood, you could hear a pin drop in the sanctuary. There was no applause, not that I care for that, but there is no husbands and no wives coming up afterwards like, man, I needed to hear that. Why is that? The issue is, is because the indoctrination that you can't say anything to offend the woman, even though it is scriptural, even though it is coming from scripture and it's supported by the Bible, not man's opinion, that is a form. And this shows you the indoctrination that has transpired within the church, that a person in a church, a husband in a church or a wife in a church, if hearing a message immediately confronts them with a sin that they're dealing with. They don't like it. They don't want it. They can tune it out and they will leave. That's a huge issue. And that is one way ideological subversion has influenced the church and specifically the way in which the ideology of feminism has and continues to influence the women. And what you may hear from a lot of women, and here's one specific way you hear this, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this. If you talk to a bunch of different women, from any different churches. And I've been, I was in the military, moved around a lot. And I've heard this from so many different people is that women believe, and they have been indoctrinated to think that they have to, and can only be taught by a woman to get a woman's perspective on these issues. Now, some women will say, of course, I have no issues hearing from the pastor, but when it comes to matters of what the Bible says regarding women, I need to hear this from a woman, not from a man. This right there, that is a logical fallacy known as the psychotherapy fallacy or the psychologist therapy fallacy. And what that fallacy is, is this occurs when an external observer assumes that their subjective interpretation of something represents the objective nature of that thing. So the subjective interpretation that they have is that only women can speak to women on women's issues. But what's interesting is that the Bible is the objective standard that can speak to the issues in and of itself. And if the pastor is merely but preaching what the word says from an objective standpoint of the objective force of the standard and source of truth of scripture, it should be accepted. You don't need to have a woman dictate this. You don't need to have a woman teaching a woman how to be a woman. Now, Titus 2 holds us other things to check on how does it work out practically, but Regarding the biblical God-given mandate and roles for both men and women, it's very clear that a man can and should speak to, especially if it's the pastor, a woman's roles from scripture. You know, and I, I've had a lot of women say, you know, I can't have a man teach me anything about what being a woman is because he isn't a woman. But if you flip the coin though, and here's what's crazy about this. If you flip that coin, especially for those in the camp that believe that women can be pastors, by you saying in one instance that I can't learn anything from a man about what being a woman is what then logically follows that a woman in the role of a pastor, which first Timothy two twelve addresses this, that that can't be happening, but let's just say they are doing that. A woman then is preaching and teaching men on how to live out the Christian life. So in one instance it's rejected, but in the other instance it's supported and not just supported. It's, it's encouraged. 
that no women can be pastors and should be pastors. But in the other instance, men can't speak to me. Men, women can speak to men. Why is that? Honestly and truly, it's really just, it's a simple explanation. It comes from the fall. It comes from the fall and original sin. And in Genesis three, it talks about and explains the laziness and passivity of man and the woman's desire to overthrow and to usurp her husband. But this also is coming from a deep rooted sense of traditionalism and the cultural influence on people within the church that do not allow scripture to shape their ideologies. They allow the cultural influence to shape their ideologies. Now, what needs to happen is that every man and woman needs to allow the truths of scripture to dictate truth, despite your feelings regarding the matter. Too often people are driven by their feelings and emotions and experiences to dictate truth, which is a very dangerous problem to have. Instead, what we must do is we must all humble ourselves and ask, what does the Bible say concerning the matter? And then allow the scriptures to dictate what truth is. Now, once you've done that, if scripture directly speaks against a specific viewpoint I hold, will I conform and lay down my viewpoint so that I can align with scripture? What I see happening today is that's not the case. If scripture speaks against a viewpoint or a view that I have, and it speaks specific, even objectively about it, where for instance, if Paul says, therefore, let no sexual immorality be there. And I think that I can live in sexual immorality. Most people will not make their worldview and the way in which they live their life fall under the authority of scripture. In fact, they will try and bend scripture to fall under the authority of how they view scripture. So we see that man has put themselves in the center fold of, or essentially being the gods of their own life and not let scripture, which is the word of God dictate how they are to live. So I have that option. Will scripture, and if scripture speaks directly against the specific viewpoint I hold to, will I conform and lay down my viewpoint? Or will I simply dismiss the text of scripture because this does not agree with how I feel? And instead, I'm going to let my feelings and emotions that I've arrived at through a cultural and secular perspective influence my viewpoints. And what I see is that the whole issue comes down to submission to the authority of scripture. My question is for all of you listening is, do you believe that scripture is sufficient or do you believe that it's mostly sufficient and kind of authoritative? The Bible is the word of God. It is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and righteousness. If you don't view it that way and you call yourself a Christian, then I don't know how you are learning and how you are living your Christian life. What you are doing is you are a cultural or if you will, a titled labeled Christian, but in practice, you are a cultural Marxist and you are a individualist and you are a humanist because if you don't adapt and submit to the authority of God's word, then you are just doing whatever you want. And Christ is not the Lord of your life. See, true believers submit themselves to the authority of God's word. True believers desire to adhere to scripture. True believers want to pursue a life of holiness and pursuing after holiness, not pursuing after a life of social acceptance, not pursuing a life off of emotional affirmation and not pursuing after a life of, I dictate what truth is and what is not. We must, we must not be tossed to and fro, but instead we have to ground ourselves in God's word. So this is a short podcast. I just wanted to hit some of these issues and I really wanted to do this podcast to get you all thinking what am I doing or what church that I am going to, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? And what is the biblical precedence and basis for why they are doing that? The way in which I view how church should be conducted is that there must be clear biblical justification, whether it's explicit or implicit for why the church is doing anything. 
And if I can't point you to either the general principle out of scripture using chapter and verse as my support, then why am I doing it? Then I need to be very careful and cautious and willing to change my viewpoint and perspective and allow scripture to help disciple me, not let the culture disciple me, not let what other people are saying, not what other people are doing, but allow scripture to dictate. So if you're at a church that is doing things that is not prescribed or described in scripture, such as uh, church goes to the movies and they're playing movies for Sunday morning, trying to find the spiritual implications from Barbie or any of these other movies, you need to really take a step back and be like, what on earth am I a part of? Church should be a family body because we are all individual members. We constitute the church. Christ's body was bled for and died for and purchased the cross or purchased the church by what he did on the cross. So I hope in one way this gets you thinking. I hope this gets you asking questions. And I hope also it challenges you. If someone comes to you and presents you with an issue or presents you with an item that instead of you immediately dismissing it, you hit pause and you explore the scriptures for yourself to dictate, hmm, is there any validity in what they just said? Well, I hope you guys enjoy this. I've got some fun uh, guests scheduled in the upcoming future. It's just been very busy around here and I get to get on this podcast when I can. But if you're curious or if you have other ideas of what you'd like to hear in a podcast too, hit me up at Ethan at EthanJago.com or you can shoot me a direct message on Instagram at EthanJago. Well, guys, thank you for joining the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. Catch you guys next time.